First Peter chapter 1, beginning with verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. This is the reading of God's word. Now the great theme of Peter's first letter is uh, the grace of God that gives strength to stand firm. And here in this section, he dives into the hope that is the engine of perseverance. For Peter sets before us the hope that we have in Christ to encourage us to stand firm despite persecution and other challenges. Now in our daily lives, we often put off immediate pleasures for a future greater reward. Uh, Even animals are known to do this sort of thing from time to time. At the Mississippi Institute for Marine Mammal Studies, the dolphins have been trained to bring any litter that falls into their tank to their keepers, and in return, they get a fish as a reward. Well, back in 2003, this dolphin named Kelly figured out that a small piece of trash brings the same reward as a big piece of trash. And so she learned to store her trash under a rock and tear off a little bit at a time for the keepers and get a bunch of fish out of one big piece of litter. And she even learned that she would get a lot of fish if she brought them a seagull that made its way into the pen. And so she learned to save up a few of her fish to attract more seagulls so that she could catch those seagulls and bring, even, and bring those seagulls to the keepers and get even more fish. Well, we deal with bigger problems, or with, yeah, bigger problems than dolphins. They have to cope with litter, but we have a faith that puts us in tension with the world, and the world will make sure that we know it. And the reward that God promised to us is much bigger than some tasty fish, for his reward is eternal life. His reward is an inheritance in God's heavenly kingdom that is waiting for us. But hope is not just wishful thinking. He gives you good reason to hope in Christ. And that's why Peter starts off this verse with that therefore. For he is referring to everything that he's proclaimed in verses 3 through 12, where he writes of Christ's resurrection from the dead the tested genuineness of our faith, the trials that we endure, the love that we have for Christ, and the prophecies of Christ's suffering and glory. For by Christ's resurrection and the strength God gives us to endure, he gives us good reason to endure in hope. And so in verses 13 through 16, Peter is beginning to explain what it means to live in hope. And from this passage tonight, two key themes emerge. First, in verse 13, what it takes to live in hope. And second, in verses 14 through 16, the theme of holiness, or what hope looks like in action. So first we look in verse 13 at this command to live in hope. What does it take to live in hope? And to start to answer that question, we should talk about what hope is 
Now, in the Bible, this word hope is, is used differently from the way that we use it. For example, if we say, oh, I hope that it's sunny tomorrow. Well, in Scripture, hope refers to confident assurance. It refers to an assurance based on evidence. It's like if you go to bed on Saturday night, hoping that tomorrow will be the Lord's Day. You look forward to worship and rest with God's people, but your hope is not hypothetical. It's certain, because you know, sun, Saturday, sorry, you know Sunday follows after Saturday. It always has, and it always will. And likewise, your expectation of hope in the coming grace, the grace that comes at Christ's resur- resurrection, is fully assured. For you know that God's grace will completely come to you when Christ is revealed. Now, hope is not merely a benefit of faith in Christ, but faith is something that is meant to be pursued. Sorry, hope is meant to be something that is meant to be pursued. And so as we consider this, we look at three instructions Peter adds to this command to hope. He says to prepare your minds for action, to be sober-minded, and to set your hope fully on grace. Now, first, he says, prepare your minds for action. Now, this is an English translation of a more colorful Greek phrase. For Peter says in Greek, to gird up the loins of your mind. Now, in the ancient world, you know, people would wear tunics for their everyday uh, life and work. But when you had to do hard work, all that material gets in the way. And so, a a man who was hard at work would, would hike up his tunic to his knees Uh, pull it back through his, in between his legs, and wrap it around himself and tie it off uh, at his waist or tuck it into his belt. And so he would turn his tunic basically into a pair of shorts so that he would be free to get his work done. The commentator Karen Jobes gives, I think, a nice modern equivalent. She writes that it's as though Peter says to roll up your shirt sleeves. Be ready to put effort into hope, because hope is not easy or light work. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that true believers may have the assurance of their salvation diverse ways shaken, diminished, and intermitted. But also the confession says that by the right use of ordinary means, the true believer may attain the hope of salvation. Hearing God's word, prayer, participating faithfully in the sacraments. These are all things that exercise your faith and lead you to assurance. But it isn't always easy. So God calls us to be ready for action. And second, perhaps by explaining a little further what it means to be, excuse me, to be ready for action, Peter writes to be sober-minded because hope is not wishful thinking, it's not pie in the sky, it's not fantasizing. Hope is serious, and it deserves the best attention that you can give. For this call to sober-mindedness shows the profit that can come to you from the study of Scripture and of theology, because these are studies, these are subjects that can give you encouragement and hope. But don't be fooled. Insobriety is not silly. It can be deadly serious in its own way. Uh, Edmund Clowney writes that insobriety is not just silly hallucinations like 
pink elephants, because insobriety includes devouring monsters, political oppression, lust, hatred, personal spite. But on the contrary, Peter writes in his second letter of faith, virtue, knowledge, self-control, steadfastness, godliness, brotherly affection, and love. So that diligence in Christ consists of exercising these qualities in a sober way, reflecting on the truths that God reveals in his word, so that you may bear fruit. And Peter, third, commands you to set your hope fully on this grace that is offered to us. And this means, first of all, that you look nowhere else for hope. For the world has many sirens singing to you, promise you everything your heart longs for. Perhaps for you it's respectability in public life. Perhaps a perfect marriage or other romantic relationship. Security for your family. Money. Whatever it is, we all have something, probably several things, that we stake our identity on. But putting your hope fully on Christ's grace means looking to him rather than to anything that the world has to offer. And second, it means that you hope with your entire being. Because hope doesn't just stay in your head as a fact that you know. Hope changes your heart's attitude. You will be buoyed with hope no matter what evil things may come your way. And hope changes the way that you act. For confidence in the grace you've been given makes you ready to forgive. It makes you generous. And it makes you eager to share the hope that is in you. And so we see that hope requires us to prepare our minds for action, to be sober-minded, and to set our hope fully on grace. But Peter now turns to what it is that we hope in. For we gain many benefits from Christ in this life, but Peter here is highlighting the future dimension of hope. For what we hope in is the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, if you know me, I know I've mentioned this before, you know that I love summer. It's my favorite time of year. I love the sun being up till 9 p.m. I love relaxing outside while the sun is going down. Living in a college town, I love how the pace of life slows down. But I love springtime, too. I love going downtown and seeing the crocuses blooming in late February or early March. I love the daffodils around my house. I love the evenings getting longer again. But do you know why I love these things? I love them because they mean summer is coming soon. Well, our hope is in Christ returning in the future. When the day comes, God's promise will come true that the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them within the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. In hope, you have assurance that whether you are alive or dead that day, God's grace will be poured out on you as you are delivered up to a kingdom where you will see God face to face and you will live in the joy of his presence forever. But Christ had to earn this future hope for you. 
He earned your hope through his death and resurrection. For one day all people will be judged by God. And without faith in Christ, your guilt will prevent you from entering God's heavenly kingdom. But if you have faith in Christ, if you hope in him, you will be declared innocent by God and welcomed into his kingdom. And if you share in this future hope today, there is no looking back. For this is another aspect of hoping fully in Jesus. We all give up something for the sake of faith in Christ. That was exactly the situation that First Peter's audience was in. These were people who uh, had, to, to whatever degree, they had a life where they, they fit in prior to their faith in Christ. But now they are maligned, they are insulted, uh, they are persecuted for their beliefs. And it would sure be tempting to just go back to the way things were. But if you put your, your hope fully on Christ, there is no going back. There is no going back to the way that, there was, that you were before because you know that the only path forward, the only path to that heavenly kingdom is through this faithfulness that you have in Christ. And in that kingdom, whatever you suffer in this life, there will be no sorrow, there will be no sickness. There will only be perfect spiritual and physical health and eternal life and joy. And so there we have the command to put our hope fully in God's grace. It requires genuine effort, but God has promised his grace to us and secured this grace by raising Christ from the dead. But now in verses 14 through 16, Peter further teases out what our lives look like when we set our hope on him. And in short, we will be holy. And in Peter's argument, this holiness takes on three aspects. We will live like God's children. We will not be conformed to our ignorant lusts. And we will imitate God's holiness in all of our conduct. And so first Peter addresses us as God's children for recognizing that you are a child of God is crucial to being faithful. Now you can only be a child of God by his grace. Paul writes in Galatians 4 that by Christ's redemption, by his sacrifice on our behalf, those who have faith in him are adopted as his children. And that comes with all kinds of benefits. In particular, being able to call on God to take care of you and to give you his spirit so that you may be assured of your salvation. But here in Peter, the focus is on obedience. In the ancient world, obedience was the chief characteristic of the father-child relationship. For obeying a father is simply what you do. It would be actually unnatural to have a father that you don't obey. But in this adoption, God does not simply order you to obey him. He transforms you and he makes you like himself. Now, the ideal father passes on wisdom to his children. In fact, the first section of the book of Proverbs takes the form of a father instructing his sons in how to be wise. And in adoption, God gives us his spirit to guide us. As Paul writes in Romans 8.14, that all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. 
In verse 30, he says that in the Spirit, God makes Jesus the firstborn among many brothers. So this appeal to being children is not only an appeal to obedience, but also a reminder that God is working to make you holy, just like himself. And so as God's children, he teaches us and trains us to walk in holiness. And when God makes us his children, he transforms us from who we used to be. And as we see in verse 15, we see that he trains us to be conformed not to the passions of our former ignorance. Now the Greek word translated passions here could equally well be translated lusts. I expect that the ESV went with passions to clarify that Peter is not only talking about sexual desires, but I think that there's something to the word lust as well because it it helps you grasp just how all-consuming the passions that Peter is speaking of are. For no matter how good or bad of a life you led before you put your trust in Christ, you were full of lusts. All kinds of things, both good and bad, can become objects of our evil desires. Friendships, wealth, an easy life, the approval of parents. We were obsessed with one thing or another, and maybe several things. That Things that took us far from God. These lusts consumed us and led us very far from God and his ways. In commenting on this reality, uh, Edmund Clowney brings up an incident in the trial of Adolf Eichmann. Now, Eichmann was the main logistics man for the Holocaust. He found out the addresses of as many Jews as he could. He scheduled the trains that took millions of Jews to ghettos and then into concentration camps. He arranged for their homes to be looted after their deportation. And he said that he would leap laughing into the grave with the satisfaction of his part in the death of over five million people. Well, Eichmann was finally captured in Argentina in 1960, and he was tried in 1961. Now, the Jewish writer and Holocaust survivor Yehiel de Nur testified in the trial. And about seven minutes into his testimony, he abruptly passed out, stone cold on the floor, right on the stand. When Mike Wallace, the the journalist, later asked him about this in an interview, he told Mike Wallace why. He said, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like him. And so are we all. For there is no depth of wickedness that you and I could descend to in our wicked desires apart from Christ. For apart from God, we are fully ignorant of God and his ways. We do not know holiness apart from God. As the Bible repeatedly insists, it is the fear of the Lord that is the beginning of knowledge. Ignorance is wickedness. But God enlightens us by revealing himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so God enlightens us by showing us his holiness. He is the Holy One. And as Peter says, that he calls us to imitate him in holiness. In verse 16, citing the passage, You shall be holy, 
for I am holy. Well, this actually is a quote of several passages in Leviticus with identical or near identical phrasing. And by looking at the context surrounding those passages in Leviticus, we can assemble a picture of what Peter is referring to in his call to imitate God as the Holy One. So first in Leviticus 11.44, this call to imitate God in holiness appears in the middle of the food regulations for ancient Israel. For the Israelites were forbidden from eating certain animals, birds, and fish. Now, it wasn't that these animals were inherently evil. Uh, Peter himself learned about that in Acts 10 when God presented him with a feast of unclean animals to eat. Now, these dietary regulations were meant instead not to teach them that these animals were evil, but to teach Israel that holiness meant being separate from the nations. But now God has declared all foods clean, and he's saved people from all nations. Yet there's still a distinction between those who know God and those who do not know God. Now the idea is not that you should have no contact with unbelievers, but you should be distinguishable from them as as well. For you are to walk in God's ways, not in the world's ways. God still makes a distinction between his children and the world. And in our conduct, we must honor that distinction. Now, the second reference uh, is to Leviticus 19.2. And this, this is the one where Peter quotes exactly, word for word, what is written in, in the ancient Hebrew text. Now, this chapter of, of Leviticus 19, it introduces a section about honoring father and mother, about how to make offerings that please God, and so on. But this chapter especially teaches about specific ways to love your neighbor as yourself. In this chapter, God commands his people to leave food in their fields for the poor, to deal honestly with one another, to pay workers on time, and so on. And so we see that love for your neighbor and treating your neighbor fairly, as well as honoring your father and your mother and bringing the best of all you have to God, is crucial to imitating his holiness. Third, we have Leviticus 20, verses 7 through 8. And in this section, God forbids his people from offering their children to the false god Molech. Now, holiness requires faithfully worshiping the true God, which would include caring for our children well and raising them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, seeking their good rather than their harm. In this chapter, God also forbids turning to mediums and necromancers, consulting them so that we may try to know uh, what is in the future. For we are to trust God alone for our future, rather than trusting some knowledge that we might have for the future. God has our future in his hand, and he has good intentions for you. And so part of holiness is trusting in God to take care of you. And fourth, we have Leviticus 20, verse 26. And here God sums up once again uh, the obligation for his people to be separate and distinct from the nations around them. For holiness requires us to trust him and to act differently from the world around us. And so here we see clearly why Peter refers to being holy in all our conduct. 
It's not simply a matter of attending church on Sundays or of being nice people. Everything about us is supposed to be holy, with no exceptions and no excuses. There are no days off. There are no cheat days. No categories where you're allowed to overlook some evil that's in your heart. Uh, There are no petty vices that we get to let ourselves off the hook for. For There is no justification for violating any of God's commands. But rather, through introspection and prayer, God gives wisdom, and he gives the Holy Spirit to sanctify us and cause us to walk in the way that he calls us to walk. He makes us his children, and he enables us to turn from our former lusts, not perfectly and 100% in this life, although he will in the life to come. But he desires and encourages our sincere efforts in this. And he, uh, he works holiness in us, even if we're not perfect in this life. Yet, out of our best efforts, he is pleased to bring fruit through it. So by way of wrapping up this message, let's revisit these kind of key thoughts. And so first, we see Peter's call to hope. Not to wishful thinking, but to confident assurance. A hope that we put effort into. It requires a sober-minded fixation, meditation on the promises that God has revealed in his word. You don't get that by floating along with whatever idea comes along, but instead by continually putting before your mind the promises of God. Preach the gospel to yourself daily, as they say. Remember that Christ suffered and died for you and that you have died with him and that in death you are set free from sin, which is the call to holiness. For we have a faith that teaches us that in the life to come we will be 100% all that God made us to be. But by his grace, he gives strength to make progress toward that goal in this life. He makes us his children, which means he makes us like himself. And he gives us wisdom and strength from the Holy Spirit to be holy as he is holy. But finally, all of this takes faith. For God has given you every reason to believe that he will unquestionably follow through on all of his promises. And we see this especially in Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And if God raised Jesus from the dead, how can he possibly fail to raise you? He gives you his Holy Spirit, and therefore he gives you strength to do all that he requires in his word. But most of all, he gives you every reason to hope and all the strength you need to hope. Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for this gift of hope. We We thank you that you have raised our Lord and Savior Jesus from the dead and that he is alive now and indeed is praying for us on our behalf so that you would provide for us all of our needs. So, Father, we pray that you would cause us to set our minds on things that are in heaven above, that we would walk through this world full of hope in a holiness that honors you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.